This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from The New Yorker magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. Each month, we ask a current fiction writer to choose a story from the magazine's archive to read and discuss. This month, we'll hear Mavis Gallant's story, When We Were Nearly Young. We stood in endless queues together in banks, avoiding the bank where Carlos worked because we were afraid of giggling and embarrassing him. We shelled peanuts and gossiped and held hands in the blank, amiable waiting state that had become the essence of life. When We Were Nearly Young was first published in the magazine in 1960. It was chosen from our archive by Antonia Nelson, who has been publishing short stories in The New Yorker since the early 90s. Nelson is the author of three novels and five short story collections, including her latest, entitled Some Fun. She joins me now from the studios of KMUW in Wichita, Kansas. Hi, Tony. Hi, Deborah. Mavis Gallant started publishing fiction in the early 1950s, and she was a a fixture in The New Yorker for decades. When did you first start reading her work? I I must have read some of her work without paying attention to the name because The New Yorker was always around our house. And that's the case with many of The New Yorker writers. I recognize the work when I come back to it without having attached it to a particular person at, at the time. So you know, in the 70s is my guess. And um, it was recently, maybe three or four years ago, I reinvestigated her. And I don't actually remember why. Maybe it was the publication of the um, Michael and Dace Paris stories, his compilation of her stories that made me want to read all of her work. And I found all of her books, uh, or all that I could find and had them shipped to me in in a giant box. I remember doing the same thing in college. I um. I somehow came across a story, and then I went through all of these secondhand bookstores looking for right, <laughs> for out-of-print right. copies. And, you know, it's what's really horrifying—well, it's horrifying to me, but this happens so often that it no longer can horrify in quite the same way, but that so many people don't know her work. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that she's she's faded somewhat? Well, I don't—you know, I think the short story in general is a hard uh, sell for a lot of people. I um, I find it difficult sometimes to convince students when they read short stories— of their likability. Somehow they, they feel that they are depressing as a form, and they're very inconclusive, which I, I do think is true. They feel inconclusive, and, you know, frequently you reach the end of one and turn the page as if there's going to be the wrap-up, the closure, the next part. So I, I understand you spoke to Mavis recently about this story? Yeah, I, I phoned her in Paris, and um, we had just a terrific conversation. Um, we We... We're trying to establish a kind of uh, genealogy, literary genealogy for her. And um, she mentioned that she felt she had been very influenced by Chekhov and Hemingway, two two writers who are also quite inconclusive and and whose readers often try to turn the page uh, at the end of the story as if there's going to be some kind of wrap-up. And I, I think she shares that feature in her work. And it's very deliberate. It's not that she doesn't know how to oh, wrap absolutely. things up. It's just it, it's a refusal to wrap things up. I, I, I appreciate it because it, it does the thing that short stories do best, in my estimation, is make you inhabit a moment with a character and and see the power of a small decision in many instances or just a, a very brief period of time and present it in jewel-like fashion rather than stringing it together in a larger project like the novel. Right. Can you set up the basics of the story for us? Well, it's a first-person narrator, a character who's, um, you know, probably not unlike Mavis Gallant herself, um, who's gone to live in Spain and meets up with three natives, people who've been brought up in the Franco era. And, uh, you know, her 
hanging around with these three people who are also seemingly in, in the same situation as, as she is. I'll talk more with Antonia Nelson after her reading of Mavis Gallant's story, When We Were Nearly Young. In Madrid, we lived on the thought of money. Our friendships were nourished with talk of money we expected to have and what we intended to do when it came. There were four of us, two men and two girls. The men, Pablo and Carlos, were cousins. Pilar was a relation of theirs. I was not Spanish and not a relation and a friend almost by mistake. The thing we had in common was that we were all waiting for money. Every day I went to the central post office and I made the rounds of the banks and the travel agencies where letters and money could come. I was not certain how much it might be or where it was going to arrive, but I saw it riding down a long arc like a rainbow. In those days I was always looking for signs. I saw signs in cigarette smoke, in the way ash fell, and in the cards. I laid the cards out three times a week, on Monday, Wednesday, and Friday. Tuesday, Thursday, and Saturday were no good, because the cards were mute or evasive, and on Sundays they lied. I thought these signs, the ash, the smoke, and so on, would tell me what direction my life was going to take and what might happen from now on. I had unbounded belief in free will, which most of the people I knew despised, but I was superstitious, too. I saw inside my eyelids at night the Nine of Clubs, which is an excellent card, and the Ten of Hearts, which is better, morally speaking, since it implies gain through effort. I saw the Aces of Clubs and Diamonds, and the Jack of Diamonds, who is the postman. Although Pablo and Pilar and Carlos were not waiting for anything in particular— indeed had nothing to wait for except a fortune, they were anxious about the postman and relieved when he turned up. They never supposed that the postman would not arrive or that his coming might have no significance. Carlos and Pablo came from a town outside Madrid. They had no near relatives in the city and they shared a room and a flat on Calle Ortaleza. I lived in a room along the hall. That was how we came to know each other. Pilar, who was 22, the youngest of the four of us, lived in a small flat of her own. She had been married to Carlos's stepbrother at 17 and had been a widow three years. She was eager to marry again, but feared she was already too old. Carlos was 29, the oldest. Pablo and I came in between. Carlos worked in a bank. His salary was so small that he could barely subsist on it, and he was everywhere in debt. Pablo studied law at the University of Madrid. When he had nothing to do, he went with me on my rounds. These rounds took up most of the day and had become important, for, after a time, the fact of waiting became more valid than the thing I was waiting for. I knew that I would feel let down when the waiting was over. I went to the post office, to three or four banks, to Cook's and American Express. At each place I stood and waited in a queue. I have never seen so many cues or so many patient people. I also gave time and thought to selling my clothes. I sold them to the gypsies in the flea market. Once I got a dollar fifty for a coat and a skirt, but it was stolen from my pocket when I stopped to buy a newspaper. I thought I had jostled the thief, and when I said sorry, he nodded his head and walked quickly away. He was a man of about thirty. I can still see his turned-up collar and the back of his head. When I put my hand in my pocket to pay for the paper, the money was gone. 
When I was not standing in queues or getting rid of clothes, I went to see Pilar. We sat out on her balcony when it was fine and next to her kitchen stove when it was cold. We were not ashamed to go to the confectioners across the street and bargain in fractions of pennies for 50 grams of chocolate, which we scrupulously shared. Pilar was idle, but restful. Pablo was idle, but heavy about it. He was the most heavily idle person I have ever known. He was also the only one of us who had any money. His father sent him money for his room and his meals, and he had an extra allowance from his godfather, who owned a hotel on one of the coasts. Pablo was dark, curly-haired, and stocky, with a large head and opaque eyes you saw on the streets of Madrid. He was one of the new Spaniards, part of the first generation grown to maturity under Franco. He was the generation they were so proud of in the newspapers, but he must be, he is, well over thirty now, and no longer new. He had already calculated, with paper and pencil, what the future held, and decided it was worth only half a try. We stood in endless queues together in banks, avoiding the bank where Carlos worked, because we were afraid of giggling and embarrassing him. We shelled peanuts and gossiped and held hands in the blank, amiable waiting state that had become the essence of life. When we had heard the ritual, no, everywhere, we went home. Home was a dark, long flat filled with the sound of clocks and dripping faucets. It was a pension of a sort, but secret. In order to escape paying taxes, the owners had never declared it to the police and lived in perpetual dread. A girl had given me the address on a train, warning me to say nothing about it to anyone. There was one other foreign person, a crazy old Englishwoman. She never spoke a word to me, and I think hated me on sight. But she did not like Spaniards any better. One could hear her saying so when she talked to herself. At first we were given meals, but after a time, because the proprietors were afraid about the licensing and the police, that stopped. And so we bought food and took it to Pilar's or cooked in my room on an alcohol stove. We ate rationed bread with lumps of flour under the crust and horrible ersatz jam. We were always vaguely hungry. Our craving for sweet things was limitless. We bought cardboard pastries that seemed exquisite because of the lingering sugary taste they left in the mouth. Sometimes we went to a restaurant we called the Ten Peseta Place because you could get a three-course meal with wine and bread for ten pesetas, about 23 cents then. There was also the Twelve Peseta Place, where the smell was less nauseating, although the food was nearly as rank. The decor in both restaurants was distinctly un-European. The cheaper the restaurant, the more cheaply oriental it became. I remember being served calves' brains in an open skull. One of the customers in the Ten Peseta restaurant was a true madman with claw hands, sparse hair, and dying skin. He looked like a monkey and behaved like one I had known, who would accept grapes and bananas with pleasure and then, shrieking with hate at some shadowy insult, would dance and gibber and try to bite. This man would not eat from his plate. He was beyond even saying the plate was poisoned. That had been settled long ago. He shoveled his food onto the table or onto pieces of bread and scratched his head with his fork, turning and muttering with smiles and scowls. Everyone sat still when he had his seizures, not in horror, even less with compassion, but still suspended. 
I remember a coarse-faced sergeant slowly lowering his knife and fork and parting his heavy lips as he stared. And I remember the blankness in the room, the waiting. What will happen next? What does it mean? The atmosphere was full of cold, secret marveling, but nobody moved or spoke. We often came away depressed, saying that it was cheaper and pleasanter to eat at home, but the stove was slow and we were often too hungry to linger, watching water come to the boil. But food was cheap enough. Once, by returning three empty Valdepeñas wine bottles, I bought enough food for three. We ate a lot of onions and potatoes, things like that. Pilar lived on sweet things. I have seen her cook macaroni and sprinkle sugar on it and eat it up. She was a pretty girl with a pointed face and blue-black hair. But she was an untidy, a dusty sort of girl, and you felt that in a few years something might go wrong. She might get swollen ankles or grow a mustache. Her flat had two rooms, one of which was rented to a young couple. The other room she divided with a curtain. Behind the curtain was the bed she had brought as part of her dowry for the marriage with Carlos's stepbrother. There was a picture of Maria Felix, the Mexican actress, on the wall. I would like to tell a story about Pilar, but nobody will believe it. It is how she thought, or pretended to think, that the Museo Romantico was her home. This was an extraordinary museum, a set of rooms furnished with all the trappings of the Romantic period. Someone had planned it with love and care, but hardly any visitors came. If any did wander in when we were around, we stared them out. The cousins played the game with Pilar because they had no money and nothing better to do. I see Pilar sitting in an armchair, being elegant, and the boys standing or lounging against a mantelpiece. I say boys because I never thought of them as men. I am by the window with my back turned. I disapprove, and it shows. I feel like a prig. I tip the painted blind just to see the street and be reassured by a tram going by. It is the 20th century. And Pilar cries in unaffected anguish, Oh, make her stop. She is spoiling everything. I can hear myself saying grandly, I don't want your silly fairy tales. I'm trying to get rid of my own. Carlos says, I've known people like you before. You think you can get rid of all the baggage, religion, politics, ideas, everything. Well, you won't. The other two yawn, quite rightly. Carlos and I are bores. Of them all, I understand Carlos best, but we quarreled about anything. We could have quarreled about a piece of string. He was pessimistic, and I detested this temperament. Worse, I detested his face. He resembled a certain kind of Swiss, or South African, or New Zealander. He was suspicious and faintly Anglo-Saxon-looking. It was not the English bun face, or the Swiss canary, or the lizard, or the hawk. It was the unfinished, the undecided face that accompanies the rotary sprinkler, the wet martini, pussyfooting in love and friendship, expense account foolery, the fear of the open heart. He made me think of a lawyer who had once told me, in all sincerity, bad things don't happen to nice people. It was certainly not Carlos's fault. I might have helped my prejudices, which I had dragged to Spain with my passport, but he could not help the way he looked. Pablo was stupid but cheerful. Pilar was demented but sweet. What was needed, we agreed to this many times, was a person who was a composite of all our best qualities, which we were not too modest to name. 
home from the Romantic Museum, they made me turn out the cards. I did the petite jeu, the square, the fan, and the thirteen, and the fifteen. There was happy news for everyone except Carlos, but, as it was Sunday, none of it counted. Were they typical Spaniards? I don't know what a typical Spaniard is. They didn't dance or play the guitar. Truth and death and pyromania did not lurk in their dark eyes. At least I never saw it. They were grindingly hard up. The difference between them and any three broke people anywhere else was in a certain passiveness, as though everything had been dealt in advance. Barring catastrophe, death, and revolution, nothing could happen anymore. When we walked together, their steps slowed in rhythm, as if they had all three been struck with the same reluctance to go on. But they did go on, laughing and chattering, and saying what they would do when the money came. We began keeping diaries at about the same time. I don't remember who started it. Carlos's was secret. Pilar asked how to spell words. Pablo told everything before he wrote it down. It was a strange occupation, considering the ages we were. But we hadn't enough to think about. Poverty is not a goad, but a paralysis. I have never been back to Madrid. My memories are of squares and monuments, of things that are free or cheap. I see us huddled in coats, gloved and scarfed, fighting the icy wind, pushing along to the tin peseta place. In another memory, it is so hot that we can scarcely force ourselves to the park, where we will sit under elm trees and look at newspapers. Newspapers are the solace of the worried. One absorbs them without having to read. I sometimes went to the libraries, the British Institute and the American one, but I could not for the life of me have put my nose in a book. The very sight of poetry made me sick, and I could not make sense of a novel or even remember the characters' names. Oddly enough, we were not afraid. What was the worst that could happen? No one seemed to know. The only fear I remember was an anxiety we had caught from Carlos. He had rounded twenty-nine and saw down a corridor we had not yet reached. He made us so afraid of being thirty that even poor Pilar was alarmed, although she had eight years of grace. I was frightened of it, too. I was not by any means in first youth, and I could not say that the shape of my life was a mystery. But I felt I had done all I could with free will, and that circumstances, the imponderables, should now take a hand. I was giving them every opportunity. I was in a city where I knew not a soul, save the few I had come to know by chance. It was a city where the mentality, the sound of the language, the hopes and possibilities, even the appearance of the people in the streets, were as strange as anything I might have invented. My choice in coming here had been deliberate. I had a plan. My own character seemed to me ill-defined. I believed that this was unfortunate and unique. I thought that if I set myself against a background into which I could not possibly merge, that some outline would present itself. But it hadn't succeeded, because I adapted too quickly. In no time at all I had the speech and the movements and very expression on my face of seedy Madrid. I was with Pablo more than anyone, but I remember Carlos best. I regret now how much we quarreled. I think of the timorous, the symbolic stalemate of our chess games. I was not clever enough to beat him, but he was not brave enough to win. The slowing down of our respective positions on the board led to immobility of thought. I sat nervously smoking, and Carlos sat with his head in his hands. Thought suspended, 
fear emerged. Carlos's terror that he would soon be 30 and that the effective part of his life had ended with so little to show haunted him and stunned his mind. He would never be anything but the person he was now. I remember the dim light, the racket in the street, the silence inside the flat, the ticking of the Roman-numbered clock in the hall. Time was like water dropping, Madrid time. And I would catch his fear, and I was afraid of the movement of time, at once too quick and too slow. After that came a revolt and impatience. In his company, I felt something I had never felt before, actively northern. Seeing him passive, head on hands, I wanted to urge and exhort and beg him to do something, act, talk, sing, dance, finish the game of chess, anything at all. At no period was I as conscious of the movement and meaning of time, and I had chosen the very city where time dropped, a drop from the roof of a cave, one drop at a time. We came to a financial crisis at about the same moment. Pablo's godfather stopped sending money to him. That was a blow. Pilar's lodgers left. I had nothing more to sell. There was Carlos's little salary, but there was also his debts, and he could not be expected to help his friends. He looked more vaguely Anglo-Saxon, more unfinished and decent than ever. I wished there was something to kick over, something to fight. There was the Spanish situation, of course, and I had certainly given a lot of thought to it before coming to Spain, but now that I was here and down and out, I scarcely noticed it. I would think, I am free, but what of it? I was also hungry. I dreamed of food. Pilar dreamed of things chasing her, and Pablo dreamed of me, and Carlos dreamed he was on top of a mountain preaching to multitudes, but I dreamed of baked ham and Madeira sauce. I suspected that my being here and in this situation was all folly, and that I had been trying to improve myself, my moral condition, that is. My financial condition spoke for itself. It was like Orwell in Paris, reveling in his bedbugs. If that was so, then it was all very plain and very Protestant, but I could not say more for it than that. One day I laid out 48 cards, the Grand Jeu. The cards predicted treachery, ruin, illness, accidents, letters bringing bad news, disaster, and pain. I made my rounds. In one of the places, the money had come, and I was saved. I went out to the university where the fighting had been 11 or 12 years before. It looked like a raw suburban housing development, with its mud, its white buildings, and puny trees. I waited in the cafe where Pablo took his bitter coffee, and when he came in I told him the news. We rode into the heart of Madrid on a swaying tram. Pablo was silent, I thought because he was delighted and overwhelmed. Actually, he must have been digesting the astonishing fact that I had been expecting something, and that my hanging around in banks was not a harmless mania, like Pilar in the Romantic Museum. My conception of life free will plus imponderables, seemed justified again. The imponderables were in my pocket, and free will began to roll. I decided, during the tram ride, to go to Mallorca, hire a villa, invite the three for a long holiday, and buy a dog I had seen. We got down from the tram and bought white, tender, delicious, unrationed bread, weighed out by the pound, and three roasted chickens, plus a pound of sweet butter, and two three-liter bottles of white Valdepeñas. We bought some nougat and chestnut paste, 
I forget the rest. Toward the end of our dinner and before the end of the wine, Carlos made one bitter remark. The difference between you and us is that in the end something will always come for you. Nothing will ever come from anywhere for any of us. You must have known it all along. No one likes to be accused of posturing. I was as irritated as I could be and quickly turned the remark to his discredit. He was displaying self-pity. Self-pity was the core of his character. It was in the cards. All I could ever turn out for him were plaintive combinations of twos and threes, an abject fear of anonymous threats, and worry that his friends would betray him. This attack silenced him, but it showed that my character was in no way improved by my misfortunes. I defended myself against the charge of pretending. My existence had been poised on waiting, and I had always said I was waiting for something tangible. But they had thought I was waiting in their sense of the word, waiting for summer and then for winter, for Monday and then for Tuesday, waiting, waiting for time to drop into the pool. We did not talk about what we could do with money now. I was thinking about Mallorca. I knew that if I invited them, they would never come. They were polite. They understood that my new fortune cast me out. There was no evasion, but they were nice about it. They had no plans and simply closed their ranks. We talked of a longer future, remembering Carlos and his fear. We talked of our thirties as if we were sliding toward an icy subterranean water, as if we were to be submerged and frozen just as we were, first Carlos, then Pablo and me, finally little Pilar. She had eight years to wait, but eight would be seven, and seven six, and she knew it. I don't know what became of them, or what they were like when their thirtieth year came. I left Madrid. I wrote for a time, but they never answered. Eventually they were caught, for me, not by time, but by the freezing of memory. And when I looked in the diary I had kept during that period, all I could find was descriptions of the weather. That was When We Were Nearly Young by Mavis Gallant, originally published in The New Yorker in 1960. Hi, I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor of The New Yorker. Each week on the Writer's Voice podcast, New Yorker fiction writers read their newly published stories from the magazine. You can hear from authors like Colson Whitehead. Turner nudged Elwood, who had a look of horror on his face. They saw it. Griff wasn't going down. He was going to go for it, no matter what happened after. Or Joy Williams. Her father was silent. Slowly, he passed his hand over his hair. This usually meant that he was traveling to a place immune to her presence, a place that indeed contradicted her presence. She might as well go to lunch. Listen to new stories or dive into our archive of great fiction. You can find the work of your favorite fiction writers and discover new ones. Listen and follow The Writer's Voice wherever you get your podcasts. Tony, I, the, the one thing I feel when I read the story, what Mavis Gallant is so good at doing is capturing this sense of emotional dislocation um, of a character who's kind of adrift or in limbo and between one part of her life and another part of her life. And that, that's a sensation that is familiar to me from your stories as well. Often your characters seem to be between things or figuring out where to go next. Is that something that draws you to her? 
Probably. I, I mean, I think every story, every short story is dealing in some way with a transition. And I think locating transitions that are, um, on the one hand, seem real to the reader, and on the other are perhaps transitional states that other writers haven't glommed onto or are located is what attracts me to her work. Mm-hmm. Now, we've published dozens of, of Gallant stories over the years. What was it about this story that made you choose it? Um, well, I, if I could have, I would have read you know a lengthy two-hour story of hers. <laughs> I love her work so much. Um, but I liked the sense that the reader is in the same position as the character, in a way, waiting for something to occur, not having a feel for that. Also, that it, it seems to celebrate the way that a life changes just because it's time for it to change. You know, this period of time in the character's life, which is the 20s, where the the sort of looming sense of getting older and yet no notion about what one might supposed to be doing in the meantime, I remember that sensation and I appreciate her capturing that. It's not something that I can recall feeling from a story before, that that mm-hmm. feel of just waiting. Speaking of, of the sort of subtle emotional transitions that happen in, in her stories, where do you think that actually takes place in this story? I think the character is assuming that she knows these people and that their situation of being impoverished and in their 20s and living in proximity with one another has put them somehow on the same footing and they aren't as lucky in some way, and they notify her of that, and where she might be thinking about developing her own character and moral qualities, she's, I think, understood that that isn't something she's in charge of, that that she will never be able to redress any of what she may see as uh, problems. Mm-hmm. Tony, I also spoke to Mavis a few weeks ago about the story, and, and at the time she wanted to stress how different Spain was in the 50s than it is now. This was sort of alien territory for her. Mm. She also mentioned that the story was partly autobiographical and that she had chosen to go to Spain alone as a young woman in order to discover herself, that she felt she wouldn't really know what she was about, what her responses were to things, unless she threw herself into this alien territory. And then, of course, she was foiled in that attempt because she she assimilated quite quickly and <laughs> learned Spanish and so on. Um, there's a great line in the story that just makes me laugh. It's where the, the narrator refers to her own character as being ill-defined. Uh-huh. Um, and in a sense, it's sort of Mavis Gallant breaking in and saying, I haven't, I haven't written this character very <laughs> clearly, or I don't quite have a sense of this character. And it's... it's um, at the same time, I think maybe what she's saying is that this is what makes a writer, that it's someone who is aware that characters need to have a shape. Well, when she's at the, when they're all at the museum together and she refuses, the character refuses to participate in the romance of, you know, pretending it's the past. I think that's kind of interesting because the difference between the pragmatic and the romantic is displayed there to some degree. And her isolation from these three with whom she shares a kind of life, and you know she's standing in the room with them, but she's she's looking out the window, you know, reassuring herself, yes, it's the twentieth century, and no, I won't participate in that in that romance you have going on there. It's an it's an interesting um, dramatic tableau, sort of about the story itself. By the end, yeah, the unspoken context here is that Mavis, in this period of her life, was waiting to see if she could become a writer, if she could make it as a writer. And the money she was waiting for was was payment for a story if if her agent uh, back in New York happened to sell one. Wow. 
And as it turned out, her agent back in New York was cheating her and selling her stories and not sending her the money. Oh, my God. That's horrible. <laughs> um, which uh, eventually uh, she discovered <laughs> on seeing her stories appear in magazines. Unbelievable. Um, so she told was... me a great story about William Maxwell. I asked her which was her favorite of her stories, and she said, Penyat's Junction. Mm-hmm. He rejected it and told her it was too long, whatever. And um, she said then 30 years later, and she had always liked the story. She said she had always thought it was you know, a good story. She was very satisfied by what she did, and she explained all of the ins and outs of how the story worked to me, and it was really great. But then she said that 30 years later, he wrote her a letter. Um, out of the blue, apparently, and uh, apologized and said he was all wrong. He'd read it again, and he should have published it, and he had just not seen how, how good it was. And that, that was so rewarding to her, you know, on, on a variety of levels. Anyway, I thought that was kind of a great story. Tying <laughs> back into the agent thing, apparently this this charlatan of an agent had uh, sold her stories to The New Yorker and told and to other magazines as well and had told William Maxwell, who was one of the fiction editors here at the time, that uh, she was unreachable because she was somewhere on the island of Capri. So William, oh my God. <laughs> William Maxwell was sending editorial notes to, you know, General Delivery, Mavis Gallant, General De- Delivery, Isle of Capri, um, <laughs> which, of course, we're never getting to her because she was nowhere near the island. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> At the time. So. That's horrible. I've never heard of anything quite so awful. <laughs> <laughs> Tony, thank you so much. Thank you. Antonia Nelson is the author of several novels and short story collections, including Some Fun and Female Trouble, both published by Scribner. You can read several of her stories on our website, newyorker.com. Two collections of Mavis Gallant's stories, Paris Stories and Varieties of Exile, were recently reissued by New York Review Books. To subscribe to this and other free New Yorker podcasts, please visit the iTunes store. You can also download the weekly audio edition of the magazine through iTunes or Audible.com. This is the New Yorker Fiction Podcast from the New Yorker Magazine. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening.